because of this episode, because of this, I read this book that I said I would never, ever, ever, ever touch. It is... Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Keep It Fictional. I am Mark, your host for today, and I'm always I'm joined by my lovely book friends, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine. Today, we're going to be talking about works in translation because it is National Translation Month in September. Uh, National Translation Month has been commemorated since about 2013, I think. So this would make it the 10th year anniversary. And the last day of September the 30th is also recognized as International Translation Day. So it's a very big month to recognize translated works. The, perhaps the goal of National Translation Month is to promote the field of translation as a field of literary production, to increase education on literary works in translation and increase the visibility of authors from different languages, from different parts of the world that might not always get recognized because they don't publish in English as their first language. So it's just a, a good idea to kind of think about the whole broad scope of literature as it relates to translated works. Because if it wasn't for translation, we would not be able to read so many of these great books. So I think to start off today, we're going to start off with Kareen. Yes, thank you so much, Mark. I'm very, very excited for this particular topic. I've been reading a lot of books in translation. Thanks to Take a Drink, the BTS uh, reading list, and have discovered so many fantastic authors. I'm really thankful for the work of translators. It is such an art form. And I I can't emphasize enough when a translation is done well, you don't notice it. But when a translation is done poorly, you, you can really tell. And I'm just going to give a shout out at the beginning, although I didn't choose one of the books that he has translated. But my, I guess, translator crush um, in that I have really enjoyed every single book that I have read that he has translated is um, Anton Hur, who did uh, Curse Bunny and just recently completed the uh, Violets by uh, Kyung Suk Shin, who did Please Look After Mom. And I am voraciously trying to get my hands on everything that he has translated because I just think, again, working with very different authors, he he respects their style so much. And yet you really get to like the heart of the book. So that's that's my shout out to him. But I did not choose one of his books to talk about <laughs> because I have been waiting for a moment to talk about this book that I really enjoyed that, like, spoiler alert, I think is actually going to be on my top books of the year. Yeah, I'm kind of calling it here. Um, it is a book that I read on vacation in the bit of like a reading slump. And this book just kind of like got me thinking. I took it a little bit of a time because every chapter that I read, I kind of had to shut it and think about it for a while because the author is just saying so much. So 34-year-old Miss Shibata has just started a new job at the Cardboard Tube Manufacturing Company. Woo, what a good time. She has recently switched from kind of one menial job to, frankly, another menial job to escape the sexism that she faced at her previous job, only to realize that when she comes into the cardboard tube manufacturer, that the sexism is still there. It's just more subtle than it is overt. 
So as the only woman in the office, despite being a colleague on level with everyone else, she is always expected to set everything up for the meetings, make coffee for everyone, do their photocopying, as well as clean up all of their dirty dishes after the meeting. Even though she is on par with all these people, it is the unspoken and sometimes spoken expectation that as the only woman, she will do all of these tasks. And so she does, grumbling under her breath, until one day, Miss Shibata snaps. When she is asked to clean up all of the dirty, disgusting coffee cups after another sales meeting, she turns to her colleague and says, I can't. I'm pregnant. And the smell of the coffee cups gives me morning sickness. And with that little or kind of big white lie, everything changes for her. All of a sudden, her coworkers remember how to use their hands and they can make their own coffee. And strangely enough, they also gain the ability to pick up after themselves. And when treats are delivered to the office, she can just put them on a desk and they can walk over and get them themselves. And because she is pregnant, Miss Shibata, of course, cannot be expected to work any overtime. Oh, no, no, no. She gets to leave on time. She can go home and take a long bath or watch TV or even watch a movie. Suddenly, she has time for herself. Even though it's not really for her, it's all for the baby? Question mark. She finally has time and energy to devote to herself while everyone is expecting that she is devoting all of this energy to her unborn child. Here's where it takes a little bit of a surrealist turn. As she follows along with the app of her unborn fetus and has to add more and more towels under her shirt so that it looks like she is growing, she almost starts to believe in this baby that she is having, this unborn child of potential. And so she even finds herself signing up for a expectant mother aerobics class where she chats with her fellow future moms about all their plans and all the things that they are experiencing. This is the... <laughs> one of the weirdest premises for a book that I have ever read, but my God, does the author pull this off? It's not just about... well. It's about so many things. It's not just about the the sexism of society where women are expected to kind of pull up all this emotional label and tidying, but it's also about how do you give your permission to take care of yourself? And how do you give your permission to, to take care of yourself when you are just a void for another being to fill? It's also about how motherhood obliterates personhood. It's about the corporate approaches to parenthood. It's a social commentary. It's everything. It's about loneliness in society and how do you make friends as an adult? And like the horrible intrusiveness of people who feel like they own a little bit of a pregnancy and ask you horrible intrusive questions. Again, this book is a slim little volume that will absolutely knock your socks off. It is the new book this year by Emmy Yagi, 
It is called Diary of a Void. And it is translated by uh, David Boyd and Lucy North. It just came out this year. And if you are looking for a funny, ironic, subversive, sarcastic, sly take on social commentary, you should absolutely pick up this book. Thank you, Corrine. It's always good to hear all these different translated works that have these different perspectives, particularly in this case, a very almost surrealist kind of take on like social commentary from what it sounds like, but very interesting for sure. I think I will actually go next. So the book that I will be talking about is All the Lovers in the Night by Miyako Kawakami. Kawakami has been around for a decent amount of time now, since 2006 in Japan, when she first started publishing poetry before moving on into novel-length works. Her early poetry has won a number of prizes, as well as her full-length works. So, for example, her uh, short story collection, Breasts and Eggs, won the Akutagawa Prize for Best Literary Short Story. Another one of her novels, Dreams of Love, which hasn't been translated to English, has also won a number of prizes, as well as the work that came out just before this one in English, Heaven, was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize. She's won a vast array of awards, but at the same time, she's also sort of stood out against sort of the sort of quote-unquote old guard of Japanese literature, as she's taken a much more bolder sort of stance towards the experiences of women, as we sort of just heard from Kareen. Kawakami is also another author that is sort of known for her discussions of the female body, the female experience within Japanese society, and that very much shows up in this work as well. So this story follows the life of 30-something Fuyuko Iri and her introspective reflections on life. Fuyuko worked as a freelance copywriter, working at home at her own pace while corresponding with her supervisor and friend Hijiri, as well as former co-worker from a previous publishing company, Kyoko. It's somewhat difficult to describe the events of this novel because they all mostly take place in sort of more mundane environments and things like that. And, and it's told entirely from the perspective of Fuyoko. Her narrative style is somewhat similar, I want to say, to Haruki Murakami, but minus the sort of mole men, sheep men, rain fish, and sort of otherworldly events that populate his novels, as Kawakami herself is sort of alluded to influences from Murakami, but also sort of pointing to trying to go beyond his kind of range of topics and perspectives in her own work. So Fuyoko and her supervisor friend Hijiri frequently speak to each other very candidly about their feelings and experiences with men, both positive and negative, as well as the somewhat bizarre kinds of experiences they have had. Hijiri very much is Fuyuko's sort of main point of contact, both professionally and socially, sort of making their friendship very, very important for her because as we see, Fuyoko is very reserved, whereas Hijiri is much more outspoken and stands her grounds on issues such as like male colleagues harassing her at work, whereas some of her other friends are much more like herself where they're more timid. They don't necessarily speak their mind on their opinions. They sort of tend to take a much more uh, reserved and introspective kind of way of relating to the world. And this kind of difference of perspectives and personalities is revealed in depth through their interactions. And because of her difficulties relating to other people and finding trust or forming new relationships, Fuyuko sort of starts to develop a bit of a dependence on things like alcohol to sort of build up her own kind of confidence or ability to uh, interact socially because she has a great deal of anxiety great deal of difficulty putting yourself into new kind of social situations and things like that. And over time, her sort of dependence on this way of putting yourself out there by drinking alcohol starts to become a much bigger issue. 
So for instance, when she goes to the local cultural center to register for classes, even just talking to like the people there that day, she has a great deal of difficulty and ends up using alcohol as a way to sort of like lubricate her, herself socially to interact in these situations. But somewhat ironically, it's that because of this drinking that she meets, high school math teacher or science teacher, I should say, uh, Mitsutsuka, after Fuyuko falls ill and has fallen asleep in the lobby and lost her possessions, <laughs> Mitsutsuka, who tries to comfort Fuyuko after the, she wakes up and essentially is somewhat panicked, they meet intermittently through chance encounters at the cultural center. And they kind of like these sort of awkward encounters that slowly begin to evolve into regular meetings at a cafe and develop a bond that's not quite romantic, but also definitely special in the kind of place it occupies in their life. It's not just like a regular friendship because they each have their own sort of loneliness and sort of gaps within their life that the other person sort of occupies. And we sort of get to see how these interactions sort of like as she Fuyuko begins to develop and uh, sort of come out of her shell a bit as she begins to interact more. It also awakens buried feelings and emotions that go back to her time in high school and the one boy that she ever closely associated with and the feelings that have never sort of been resolved or developed into anything further. In this way, there's sort of like a subtle and gradual revealing of Fuyuko as a person underneath the appearances and the kinds of experiences and feelings that have resulted in their sort of outward appearance. So it's, we sort of see it like through our uh, reflections that she had very much has these deeper thoughts and feelings and kind of desires, but her outward appearance is very different from that, where she's very reserved. She doesn't feel like she can kind of go out and sort of express herself in certain ways. And this is sort of also worth noting that Kawakami's writing has a very kind of precise and close description of detail of settings and interactions that add a lot of depth and sort of flavor to the scenes that it's kind of hard to describe to put into words because it's taking like a sort of like a glance in the window or a, the crunch of vegetables in a meal, just the way that she describes these things kind of gives it like this like extra flavor to the scene and feelings of being there in this kind of realistic kind of atmosphere. And this is sort of like how she sort of gets the deeper mixed feelings, thoughts, and perceptions of the different characters in the book. So if you like an intimate and finely written novel that sort of touches on relationships, friendships, and the burden of the past, or personal narratives in general, then you might also like All the Lovers in the Night. And I was also just want to mention that this book was translated by Sam Bett and David Boyd, I believe their names. Yes, Sam Bett and David Boyd. They've worked on a number of Kawakami's novels in the past, and I think they've also done other books for Europa Editions, the publisher of this book, which has done a number of works in translation from many different countries. And in my opinion, they're one of the better publishers for works in translation. So you might want to check out Europa Editions or these particular translators as well. So I think we'll go to our existential question now. And for our question this week, we've been talking about a lot of writers in translation. We often talk about them on this podcast, but there's always going to be someone who we think should get more attention, more translations, or there's a particular work by this author that we really want to see and be able to experience for ourselves. So I'm just wondering what all my book friends wish they could read by a particular author or just a particular author in general. Well, I'm going to go with my childhood favorite anime that I've only watched in anime form in Chinese. And I just, I don't understand why this is not being translated. It is Captain Tsubasa, the best soccer sports manga that you 
ever read in your life. It is just so good. There hasn't been no translation. So it was really, really annoying. And so, yeah, I wish this Kodansha, like if you can just take a look, take a look, please, at this sports manga and translate it, please, so that I can actually read it in book form. Thank you. Well, first, I want to just give a shout out to, I'm not sure what it's called, but you know, people on the internet who do unofficial translations of things, I feel like all like, you know, manga readers just appreciate that so much because I have had access to some things that I, you know, wouldn't have otherwise. But I'm thinking right now of uh, Hajiomoto, who is a manga artist and her work, A Drunken Dream and Other Stories, short manga, is one of my favorite books of all time. And if anyone ever sees it secondhand somewhere, I am dying to have a copy of it. But I love her short works and do not love her long works so much. Uh, she did The Poe Clan and The Heart of Thomas. And they're sort of like weird and unwieldy. Otherworld Barbara, worth a read. But I wish that more of her her short fiction was translated, but especially like just also available. Like she has this one, Force Shoujo Stories, that has been translated, and I've been looking for it forever. So I'm going to answer with someone who has uh, had a number of her works translated would be Yoko Tawada. A number of her full-length novels and some of her short stories have been translated to English, but she's also written a number of non-fiction works primarily in German, which is kind of surprising because she's written both Japanese and German because she's lived in Germany for a number of years since she's lived there. I can't remember when she moved there. She's maybe in her 20s or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but she tends to go back and forth between writing in Japanese and German, sometimes within the same work. She will do one version in Japanese, another in German. So just to have a chance to read some of the works that she's written in German that have not been translated to English, I think would be interesting because just the fact that her works deal with language and uh, translation so closely and the intercultural exchange and meaning, I find that to get a chance to read these particular works would be very interesting. Mm, all right. I'm going to cheat and that I'm not so much choosing like an author or <laughs> translator as I am choosing a reader who I have made it my life's mission to read from all of their bookshelf and have been very much enjoying this process. I would like all of the books that Kim Namjoon from BTS has read. Um, many of them are available in translation, but a lot of them are not. They are just in Korean and have not made it over. Um, some of them have uh, or are slowly making them in because of his popularity and because of the demand from readers. Um, but I'm hoping a lot of the books that he has on his reading list, some of the fiction, strangely enough, especially some of the art books that I've really been enjoying, um, eventually get translated. I know, I know you make that face, Fiona, but the Ruth Asawa book was amazing. Yeah, I'm hoping that eventually they make their way into English translation. I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't think it's going to happen, but I think some of the fiction might might make it, which would be amazing. All right. Got a nice diversity of interest there. And particularly the manga, I found kind of interesting to see those kind of older works that you don't necessarily hear many people talk about. I found that very interesting. Um, so I think now we're going to go to Virginia for her selection this week. All right. Well, weirdly enough, I also kind of changed my mind about this. I originally had a particular translator in mind, but because we just recently did a Latin American author episode, I wanted to go somewhere else. And I'm really apologize to all listeners here that today we happen to have three Japanese books. So um, that was not planned, totally not planned, but happens that we all just changed our mind. Not, not Mark. Mark already 
like, you know, said that he was going to do one of those. But anyway, um, so before I talk about my book, I want to give just, again, a shout out to the many, many wonderful translators out there that has brought me a lot of really great Spanish novels, Natasha Wimmer, Megan McDowell, and Sophie Hughes, um, and many, many more. So thank you for all the work that you do. I deeply, deeply appreciate it. So thank you. Um, but I decided to kind of go back to maybe to my roots a little bit, again, talk about more the earlier translator works that I used to read a lot more of, mostly original in Japanese. And this is also a book that I read and I read for you, my dear book friend, Liz. This is just for you, Liz. All right. In 2018, a little book was published. A first of this particular Japanese author's work was translated into English and it was a phenomenal success and it sold millions of copies. I didn't read it because I like to be contrary and I don't like to read things that are popular. But, you know, also like just the plot just didn't really appeal to me. Two years later, a second book was translated and it has a super cute toy hedgehog on the cover. And a few of us, I think Corinne and also some of my other co-workers in Point Media Public Library got, I think, tricked a little bit by this really, really cute cover and also because of the first book and what they expect of the first book. And I read the book and it it's about this little girl who thought that she might be an alien. I'm like, yeah, that sounds maybe more like my book. So I'm like, okay, sure, I'll read that. And I don't think I say it very often, but it is one of the very few books that I feel physically sick after reading it. I was just completely disgusted and I don't get disgusted that frequently. And doesn't matter what anyone tell me that there is a point to this, that there's a metaphor. I don't care. It was just gross. And so I couldn't deal with it. I'm like, nope, never, never again. Never am I going to read you again, author. Then this year in the summer, the third book came out, was translated. It's a short story collection. And Liz said to me, Virginia, you have to read it. I'm like, no, I am not reading this. And this was like, no, 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 really. You have to read this. And she tried to entice me by telling me about the first story, which involved a sweater made out of human hair. And she said, you see, you got to read it. It is totally for you. And I'm like, done it, Liz. Um, so because of this episode, because of Liz, I read this book that I said I would never, ever, ever, ever touch. It is Life Ceremony by Sayaka Murata, and it is translated by Jeannie Tapley Takamori, who translated all her works. Now, at this point of the podcast, I'm going to say, unless you're Liz, or give you a list, you better stay here with me right now. But for everybody else, I just want to say, Four is here, and my book friends, you know, a few episodes ago, talk about four is a time for coziness, for warmth, for pumpkin spice latte. You know, if you are not here for challenging your long-held beliefs, if you don't feel like talking about taboo subjects in very vivid, shocking, gross details, if you just want to feel like nice and cozy, you don't want to feel sick to your stomach, then please feel free to skip along. Like this is not a book for the squeamish. Like let me just tell you, that's got some pretty unsettling stuff in it. But yet I'm going to say I actually kind of like it. So um, yeah. So anyway, 
at least the cover is not deceptive this time, I feel like, because it's got this very delicious looking hot pot that has some veggies in it, maybe some meat in it, and also an anatomically correct human heart in it. So think about that. And then, yeah, so that is what this book is. Anyway, um, so again, remember, Liz told me to read this book. So if you have, if you experience any sickness and discomfort after it, please direct your complaints to her. So normal is a type of madness, isn't it? I think it's just that the only madness society allows, we call it normal. And I feel like this quote from the title story really best describes this collection of 12 short stories that are really about questioning and examining those fundamental beliefs and social norms that we hold so dear. These are the ones that we use to judge whether something is moral or amoral and how, guess what? Those norms, they do change through time. They are different in different places around the world and they evolve. So who are we to use what we think is the right thing to judge everybody else or to judge what they do with their lives. That, I think, is the theme that carries through all those 12 stories. And of course, we know for this offer, she's going to do it. If you read Earthling, you know she's going to do it with some very shocking stories. So let me tell you about some of my favorite. And um, again, I did don't say I didn't warn you. One of the stories, which I think is probably the least disturbing story, but it's kind of like a really fun one, is called A Magnificent Spread. It's a story about a sister who's desperately trying to help her little sister Kumi out so that her marriage won't end in disaster. Kumi has just got engaged. She is going to have dinner with her fiance's parents for the first time. They're going to meet for the first time. And her fiance suggested, well, why don't you like, you know, let's let's have it at your house. Um, we'll have like a dinner and you can cook, right? That doesn't sound like weird at all, except, except that Kumi has always insisted ever since she was young that she is not from this world. She is from the magical city of Dundalas. And in Dundalas, they eat weird stuff. And so her big sister knows that if Kumi cooked this stuff, it's going to end in disaster. They're going to call off the engagement because this is just too weird for everybody. So she's trying to help her sister out to see if there's a way to convince her sister to not make the food from her so-called home country. Then we have a story called Lover on the Breeze. This is a story about Naoko. She has just started dating and she found this wonderful boyfriend and uh, she started inviting him over to her house, you know, to spend some time together, to talk. But someone in the house is not really happy about this. A childhood friend of Naoko is a little jealous, is a little concerned about Naoko and she doesn't like Naoko spending so much time with this new boyfriend. So. You know, this story, just your usual love triangle with a girl and a boy and a curtain. Then we have a story called A First-Rate Material, which is a story that Liz told me about. Um, it is set in a world where because people don't want to waste things, so when people die, they make different things out of the remains of the people. So hair sweaters, fingernail 
pins, dry stomach lampshades, ribcage tables, skull bowls, bone clock, all that kind of stuff. And Nana is getting married and she really wants a ring made of human bone. And they are expensive. They're not cheap. But that will show how wealthy she is or like, you know, that she got a good catch in Naoki, who is like pretty rich. But Naoki hates all the stuff doesn't matter whether this is like something that everybody does or that it shows her the prestige naoki is dead set against anything made from human including this hair sweater that she keep wearing so nana is trying to find a way how am i going to convince naoki but perhaps a gift from his dead father may just be the thing to change his mind and it's really a story that has some really gross but yet really beautiful imagery that I'm going to let you discover in this. Then we of course we have the story called Puchi, a very short story. It's about a girl who has been invited by her classmate Yuki to share a secret. Now it's really quite exciting and 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 the girl feels really special because Yuki is usually really quiet. She doesn't like to talk a lot in class. So the fact that Yuki came to her and said, I want to share a secret with you, that's so special. And so like the girl was really excited about that. And Yuki told her that, well, like I actually have a secret pet that I keep up in the mountain. I'm not allowed to bring him home, but but I was hoping that maybe you and I could go see my pet and then uh, maybe you can help me feed him every now and then because, you know, I can't always get up there. And so the girl was really excited. It's like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So they climb up the mountain and there's this shed there. And so Yuki was like, Pucci, where are you? Pucci, come on out. And then this suit-wearing businessman wearing broken glasses came out on all fours and start walking up to Yuki and licking on the bread rolls that Yuki has brought. And of course, we have our, and I, not because of the content, but the, the title story is probably my favorite. You probably can, one, you probably can, can see why. This is a story called Life Ceremony set in sort of future Japan, which I think talk about like a, a population crisis that they're having right now is that there's just not enough babies born. And so in this world, when people die, they don't do funeral, they don't do cremation or burial, anything like that. They have a life ceremony. And the life ceremony consists of two parts. One of them is um, a dinner that you're invited to come. And the family um, of the deceased will spend days preparing and cooking all day to to prepare this dinner. And once you are fed and once you are sated, once you have partake in this dinner, then afterwards you're supposed to, hopefully that will inspire you to go find a partner, you know, at that life ceremony. And as they say, an insemination partner to go for copulation. We don't say sex in this world. The whole idea is that when you partake of life, you create life. And I don't think I have read a story that you can probably guess what is involved in the ingredients that has such detailed cooking descriptions of the whole process. And it is just the weirdest thing because on one hand, you're like, what, what? Um, but on the other hand, you just can't help but kind of laugh at some of the descriptions of this very normal cooking process and the very 
regular comments that you might hear when people are eating and having a nice dinner together. Anyway, um, so there is like lots of stories. Like I probably told you about like some of the, my favorite. And, and I feel like my favorites are the ones that, and I think she did the best in my mind, like the most sort of effective is when she really she really goes there and she just like doesn't care what taboo subjects we're talking about. She's just going to go to the extreme. I feel like those are the stories that I think she did the best. Like there are some really other some stories that doesn't involve any grossness in it, you know, and, and it still kind of fit the theme. But I, I feel like those are not, doesn't feel as strong to me in some ways. But yeah, anyway, um, so yes. These stories is going to challenge your beliefs. It's going to make you sick for days, probably. And it's going to shock you. It is going to make you think about everything that you believe in your life. And yeah, so uh, if you are ready for that, and if you're still here and has not fainted, check it out, maybe, Live Ceremony um, by Sayaka Maruda. And thanks, Liz, for your recommendation. Thank you, Virginia. I think you can say that, Charlie said that's a one-of-a-kind kind of book, for sure. Um, so I think today we'll just leave Fiona now for our last book of the day. So I'm sure we'll get something a little bit different from what we just heard. Absolutely. But first, uh, I would like you all to imagine a first-year undergrad student in their first semester who went to underfunded public school can count the novels they've read on both hands and doesn't know how to write an essay. And because you get to choose your own classes in university, uh, had no help with choosing classes and enrolled themselves in a second year Eastern European literature course for their first semester without the ability to write an essay. So this was my undergrad journey, but I'm happy to say it was actually a very positive experience. I had a very, a prof who was very understanding um, and I, I learned a lot, but this was my first introduction to translation. We read many great short stories, including Kafka, but then also some, some lesser known ones and an amazing novel that I have been waiting for someone to ask me to talk about for 15 years. So <laughs> this is Journey by Moonlight by Antel Serb, translated from Hungarian by Len Rix. Now, again, uh, this novel blew my mind, but also remember that my, my world experience was, was quite limited. But I think it was kind of a moment of, of falling in love with translated works because suddenly I realized that other lives were accessible to me in environments that I hadn't experienced myself. Now, of course, Eastern European, not that far flung, but but in that moment in my life uh, was was pretty exciting and and mind blowing. It was also written in the 30s uh, and then translated. I think the edition by Len Rex was not till like the 2000s, but I think it it held up very well. So this is the story of Mihaly, a bourgeois young man who had a little bit of a storied childhood and has decided that he's going to get serious. He's going to grow up. So what better way to grow up than to marry a serious, well-respected woman, Erzy. She is beautiful and ironically uh, is just leaving a marriage with Zoltan, who 
she found to be a little bit boring. So she's looking for some sort of like excitement in uh, Mihaly. And Mihaly is looking for some groundedness from Erzi in their life. Uh, and he wants to just work in an office and, and, and be an adult and be a good person. However, on their honeymoon in Venice, all of that falls apart quite quickly. Mihaly seems to be more interested in the old streets uh, than he is in his new wife. Then, of course, it all comes to a head when a man, a wild man, shows up on a motorcycle demanding Mihaly's attention because he has found Irvin. No time to explain any of this to Erzi. Mihaly says he must go. He'll be back soon. But of course, he is not back soon. He misses appointment after appointment to re-engage in their honeymoon. And what might be frustrating coming back to this book, I have reread it multiple times, but is this sort of, it really is a narrative about a young man who is running away from being an adult. And at this point in my life, I'm kind of like, come on, like, really? Um, but I, I, I still love uh, the adventure, the, the fact that he can't let the past lie. So growing up, Mihaly was part of kind of a band of misfits who went to elementary school together and then high school together. And ultimately, things fell apart and they went their separate ways. There is Janos, the man on the bicycle, who has always been the tough one, the bravado. There is Irvin, who has always been Mihaly's competition for the love of Ava. And Irvin mysteriously disappears before they finish high school. Ava has her brother Tomas, and Ava herself is a... Mm, I suppose she's beautiful. Uh, she's she's kind of ethereal. It's just very charming in her wildness. So Tomas and Ava are part of a family of means that sort of lets them run wild. And so they they spend their childhoods together in these uh, reenactments, these plays that they do together. And as they grow older, they become more and more real and less theatrics. So this is the story of Mihaly kind of uh, going back to confront this past. And it really, I think for me, this might be the start of like, like my interest in introspective, uh, you know, character driven novels. Truthfully, there's not a lot going on. Um, you know, it's this guy who basically is like, I want to be an adult. Oh, wait, maybe I want the wildness of my childhood. <laughs> and then we have a fun cast of characters uh, who 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 join in in that. Uh, one of the things that really grabbed me was the description of the cities and Budapest in particular, uh, where the childhood takes place. Uh, and it's still somewhere I desperately want to uh, to visit just based on Serb's description of it. There, again, there's a whole uh, very introspective like sort of, I guess, like mental health aspect to it and and definitely a uh, trigger warning for suicide and suicidal ideation. But that to me was very interesting at the time of like, oh, people can write on paper, like, like their feelings, like just really, really, um, you know, first time experiencing that. And it actually features uh, both priests and nuns. So, uh, well, I think I was already interested in in that in film. Uh, this was my first first literary experience, and I think it it really cemented cemented that uh, interest for me. Um, so a very formative book for me, and I think it it holds up quite well to reading. 
Certainly, uh, this is probably like a, I'm probably casting a wide net, but I think if you're someone who enjoys Hemingway, and and I I do, I know, like <laughs> slap on the wrist, but if that sort of expat narrative of personal relationships is interesting to you, uh, I would definitely recommend Journey by Moonlight from Antel Serb, translated from Hungarian by Len Ricks. Alrighty, thank you, Fiona. So that's it for this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We look forward to hearing from you again in a future week. And always remember, just because it's National Translation Month, you can always read translations all year around. So many good books out there from so many different perspectives and countries and languages. So I hope to see you again soon. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.